0: We've long had an eviction crisis and housing insecurity crisis, and so there's much that needs to be done, whether we're in a problem. People are being
1: forced out of their houses, that there are so many illegal evictions, there's illegal rent increases, and that there is this tension between what is home for a tenant and what is a financial asset for someone else. And if, in fact, in more moderate income society, Bank branches are one per 5,000, but in South L.A. it's one per 600,000, in East L.A. one per 650. What are we doing?
0: Welcome to Securing Justice, a podcast series created by the California Center for Ethics and Policy, or CCEP, at Cal Poly Pomona, and generously supported by California Humanities. This is the sixth episode in our series, which focuses on housing and security in California. My name is Brady Collins, Assistant Professor of Political Science at Cal Poly Pomona and Faculty Fellow with CCEP. In this episode, we share with you the last session of our 2020-2021 panel discussion series hosted by CCEP. This conversation titled, Racial Gaps in Homeownership, Income and Savings and Why They Matter, brought together three experts on the history of housing and wealth inequality in the US and Los Angeles more specifically. This conversation is special because the moderator, Alvaro Huerta, Associate Professor in Urban and Regional Planning and Ethnic and Women's Studies at Cal Poly Pomona, provokes our panelists to talk about their personal experiences, experiences with housing, poverty, and racism. And as it turns out, they each have unique stories to tell about the ways in which their lives have been touched by housing injustice and how this motivates their work. These personal reflections lay the foundation for a discussion about historical and contemporary forms of discrimination in home ownership and other forms of institutional oppression that perpetuate wealth inequality along racial and ethnic lines. A quick note due to COVID 19, these panels were held remotely via Zoom. As a result, you may at times hear the panelists refer to visuals they are presenting to the audience through Zoom's screen share function. If you're interested, The video recordings of these discussions are available at CCEP's website, which is posted in the show notes. We ask that if you like what you hear, if you care about these issues, please share our podcast with your friends, family, and colleagues. Thanks for listening.
2: Hello, and welcome to the Securing Justice, a housing insecurity podcast series brought to you by the California Center for Ethics and Policy in the College of Letters, Arts, and Social Sciences at Cal Poly Pomona. This project was made possible with support from California Humanities, a nonprofit partner of the National Endowment for the Humanities. You can learn more about Cal Humanities at calhum.org. My name is Alex Madva, and as Director of the California Center for Ethics and Policy, or CCEP, And on behalf of the CCEP faculty fellows co-organizing securing justice, namely Brady Collins, Corey Aragon and Michael Wu, we are pleased to bring you a panel discussion about racial gaps in home ownership, income and savings and why they matter from fair housing to fair savings. The questions we aim to tackle are, why do Latinx and black Americans continue to lag behind white and Asian Americans in rates of home ownership? What will be the long-term impacts on household incomes, housing insecurity, accumulation of wealth and assets, and intergenerational transfers of wealth? How will underserved communities be affected by the availability of capital to start new businesses and funding to support community organizations and community improvements? Finally, will the end of the pandemic improve or worsen the relative competitiveness of Latinx and Black Americans in the US economy? We have three esteemed panelists today, and you can learn more about each of them in the following links. Dr. Anaid Yarena is an architect, planner and researcher at University of Washington Tacoma who investigates public participation processes and activities related to housing and community development. Her research has a strong community-based component that provides knowledge to advocate with and work alongside individuals from disenfranchised groups. Lori Gay is president and CEO of Neighborhood Housing Services of Los Angeles County, which develops and maintains quality affordable housing creates and preserves affordable homeownership opportunities, supports local leaders, provides financial education, and increases the financial independence of families and people in need. Gay has worked in the community development field for over 30 years and has focused her efforts on rebuilding impoverished communities and creating mechanisms for community empowerment as well as ownership. Professor Gary Painter is a leading figure in the field of social innovation and director of both the Seoul Price Center for Social Innovation and the Homeless Policy Research Institute at USC. In addition to his recent book, Payment by Results and Social Impact Bonds, he works extensively with a variety of social innovation organizations and collective impact networks to address some of the grand challenges that society faces. Professor Painter also has extensive expertise in housing, urban economics and education policy, which shapes his research on how the social innovation process can identify new models of social change within these complex policy areas. Today's moderator is Dr. Alvaro Huerta, associate professor in urban and regional planning and ethnic and women's studies at our own Cal Poly Pomona. As a son of Mexican immigrants and product of public housing in East Los Angeles, he holds a PhD in city and regional planning from UC Berkeley, along with an MA in urban planning and a BA in history from UCLA. On that note, please bring your virtual hands together as I hand the digital mic over to Dr.
3: Huerta. All right. Well, thank you for hosting us and allowing us to be here, and everybody who's here. I see so far we have uh, 55 participants. Uh, I have 100 students, and so we should have 100 people show up. Not 45 people are going to fail, just so you know. I really appreciate this opportunity, and y'all know that we're living in very dark times. But I'll be honest, when it comes to black and brown people, we've always been living in dark times. It's just a matter that now with social media, uh, you know, we see the, the, the brutality that takes place against African-Americans in particular, and also Latinos and Latinas. And, and we're looking at the case of Native Americans and other marginalized groups, like the case of Asian-Americans being uh, victims of hate crimes right now during this time period. Uh, so for us, or well, what I always try to teach when it comes to these very difficult topics during these difficult times it, is to look at the problem as a problem, but also look at as the solution to it. Uh, because if we just solely focus on the problem, then you know we get depressed, we have anxiety and get paralysis. So for me, it's to identify the problem, but also to solve it or, and look at it that way. As bad as things are, one thing that I appreciate about what's happening in the country is that I see a movement, diversity of especially young people, Black, white, Asian, Native American, gay, straight, coming together and fighting for social justice, you know, coming together and fighting for Mr. Floyd, for his memory. So that brings me hope uh, that that this new generation in particular, and I always say this because, you know, student evaluations are coming. It, it brings me hope that, th- that this new generation is, is fighting for making this society a more equitable society, uh, a more just society. Uh, and I really appreciate the panelists here uh, and their expertise that they bring to the table. For myself, the issue of housing has always been important uh, given that I grew up in, in public housing projects in, in East Los Angeles. Uh, and it wasn't until I went to UCLA, my master's program, that I didn't realize the impact, the importance of housing. Uh, until I took a class with uh, the late Jackie Levin. And I didn't realize that it wasn't normal and it wasn't natural for those of us in the case of of Mexican Americans living in housing projects in East LA, that we would be surrounded by a railroad track on one side. We would be surrounded by factories on the other side and freeways on the other side. When you're growing up, especially when you're kids and, and you grew up in a segregated community, and everybody's black and everybody's poor, or everybody's Mexican, and everybody's poor. You don't even know that you're black or poor because everybody's the same. So we don't see this inequalities until we leave the neighborhood. We don't see this inequalities until we leave like these segregations. And we look at it from, from, from the top looking down. Uh, so for me, uh, hearing from these experts is actually therapy for me. So thank you very much, because I want to learn more about housing. I want to learn from the different perspectives that that y'all are coming from and and to be able to look at things, not just the way they are, but the way they should be in in a normative way, like what type of housing policy should we have, for example. So with that said, uh, I wanna start with President Gay. And before we get into statistics and and, and facts and figures, I I would like to know from you and then then the following uh, panelists, What got you into this type of work? You know, how how is it that when you started, was it when you got to the university, I know you have an MBA and and other degrees. Uh, I'm going to ask you for help with my taxes later, but just on the side. But how is it that you became passionate in what you do? Because I see when I see you in your your talks, you're very passionate and reaching out to helping people, uh, not just black people, not just brown people, but working class, white people, like all people. That that you serve in, in, in your capacity in the county of Los Angeles. So, how how is it that you got into this field and, and how was it, why is it important, you know, for, for us to study housing and income inequalities in America?
1: Thank you so much, Dr. Huerta. Um, it's a pleasure to be here and to meet each of you. I kind of started my earliest recollection is age five. My father pastored for 47 years up in my hometown of Orville. <laughs> so with the bill on the end you about know we had five thousand people he was the only in the town we he was the only black pastor that lived in the town and so i was spit on and called out of my name every day till ninth grade when i told janice she couldn't call me that name anymore and it's like yesterday to me and i still tear up to think about the hatred that people are taught now that's right here in california up above Sacramento near Chico State. So since we have a lot of students on the phone, just understand hatred is real. And even if you haven't directly experienced it, people have been hating for generations and they hate what's not like them. They hate what's unfamiliar. They hate what they're afraid of. And so to be the only black in my classrooms uh, until fourth or fifth grade, you know, it was a distinguishing element. Then we became the tokens in town, Dr. Huerta and we were the special black people. Guess what, that's hatred too. And it's an unwelcome position. So my recollections are that that hatred fueled fires for me to care for people beyond what they fed me. And thankfully with parents who love God first, I was able to forgive all the time. And I learned forgiveness at a very young age. And that people are people and stupidity is singular. Sometimes it looks like it's certain people groups, but those stereotypes don't work. And so we had all black and white schools and then Latinos were in Gridley. So we didn't see Latino people. Can you imagine that? And Asians were nowhere. And so I just think the people groups as we knew them, Native Americans were nowhere, even though we were on tribal lands in some respect. So it's just been awful a long time, my lifetime. But what I learned is that you could get to individuals and you could get to people and you could care for them and they could care for you. And they may look like anybody. What we shared in common, though, that was a constant was income. When people are poor, they have more things in common than not. And that race did not need to be the thing that led, but economics did. So that's why I went to school for economics and learned how people spend their money, think about money, love money, do with money, (laughs) you know, And then I got in community development, thank God. So I have passion because I've lived it. I have passion because I know every person has a chance to love knowing that hatred knows love is the cure. And that challenge is what drives me every day, Dr. Werta. And it's been a privilege to serve. It's an honor to care for people. And I still get spit on in business. We know that. Systemic racism is spit. These are not nice things. And so we need to rid ourselves of these ills in our society and we can. And there's never been a better time than today, right? Never a better time than now for us to talk about having courageous conversations around making people uncomfortable.
3: Good trouble, right?
1: (laughs) Good trouble.
3: (laughs) Good good trouble. And I've heard heard that saying, I've been making good trouble all my life. Dr. Yerena, take it away. Johnny Canales. Take it away.
4: Thank you. Thank you so much, Lori, for uh, starting us off. And thank you, Dr. Huerta. Um, I'd like to start by um, acknowledging that I'm joining you from the unceded territory of the Coast Salish people. In particular, um, specifically, I am on the traditional lands of the Puyallup tribe. As we gather virtually, I also want to acknowledge the lands of the Muckleshoot, Nisqually, Suquamish, Nahomish, Sammamish, Duwamish, and all the traditional lands on which we, all of us united here today, um, live, work, and work. I want to acknowledge the histories of dispossession and forced removal and reflect on this history in ways that honor the memory of those dispossessed and keep us committed to the cause of social justice for the Indigenous populations. And the way that I came to housing is actually generations before me. i I know I know the the most about the history of the generation right before me, both grandparents on um, my mother's side were builders. and And they cared about um, creating shelter. They cared about creating shelter for their family. and that that became their um their contribution to society. And I didn't know that I was going to follow in their footsteps until I was just about to make the decision about where to what to what to study uh, in college. And, and having had the privilege of many options available to me as far as choices for what I wanted to do, I realized that my passion was in in design and architecture. And that's how I, I started. That was in some ways step one of my agency my taking agency over um my my role in in the discussion today uh yet of course the foundation for um, that moment came through the decisions and support that my family and um yeah and, and community and the community many communities in which i was welcomed and that i lived in um set set for me to to get to that moment and when i Immigrated to that. So this is uh, this happened in Mexico. I'm uh, I was born in Mexico, and when I came to the United States for the second time in my life, after um, after having um, finished my architecture degree, I became interested. In, well, as a practitioner, I became interested in understanding the um, the rules of the game, the rules of engagement in in the United States. Um, Now, I would say I was interested in in better understanding the way the settler state works so that I could work against it. Um, And that's how I came across planning. That's how I came to um, regional and urban planning um, at the University of California, Irvine. And there is where I joined my interest for uh, design and providing shelter with um, my understanding and. Uh, commitment to social issues. And so the the nexus of those two um, areas for me is the need for shelter, the basic human need of um, of sheltering uh, individuals. And um, I would say rather than having achieved a lot of uh, hope and uh, excitement in my master's degree, it, it was a, a reckoning for me of how much work was left to be done and how problematic the the current settler state is for the survival and sustainability of humanity. So that drew me to an interest in pursuing um, a PhD degree. And I will not continue like down the story, but like just to get you like, that's how I got started down this path. And I'm very happy to be here today.
3: That sounds great. We don't want you to live the trauma of the PhD. That's another therapy session. Uh, Professor
5: Painter? Thank you for having me here, and and just really um, feel privileged to be with all my colleagues on this panel. Um, you know, it's it's fun to hear people's stories and how you know journeys bring you to this point. Whether it's talking about the research that you do or the passion and the impact that you have as you work in community. Uh, for me, as as kind of as Lori mentioned, starts early in my age. My grandfather who I called Papa was a uh, sharecropper in Southeastern Kentucky in the poorest county in the U.S., still the poorest county in the U.S. Um, you know, he, him and my, my granny, they were both really smart people, never graduated high school, never had, you know, they, it was just a story of the, the poor landless farmer. Um, and so to them, they had there was a lot of availability of government programs and so forth. Um, But my grandfather had kind of his own mindset about what programs he would accept and what he would not. As it relates to the social safety net, he did not want cash aid, but, you know, we were awash in government cheese and butter. And, you know, we, you know, because he sharecropped and he would trade food. And so there were certain things that made sense to him as it related to social safety net supports and others that he, he did not like. And so we'd have all these conversations about the social safety net. I, I remember growing up as a 10-year-old and what should be done and what shouldn't be done and so forth. So I think more than anything else, that sparked my interest. Um, when I started my undergraduate career at UC San Diego, I studied economics and I enjoyed math and economics, got a PhD at Berkeley. And what I really wanted to study was something to do with you know the social safety net and the, the program that was... A, perhaps the most curious was our public housing. And at that point called the Section 8 Voucher Program. It's really the only social safety net program that's not an entitlement, which you know makes it strange in lots of dimensions. You know, There's a whole bunch of people that qualify for housing choice vouchers these days. In um, some estimates suggest it's actually um, that the people that receive it versus the people that qualify could be as, as low as one in eight nationally, it's one in four. Um, and that generates lots of challenges and it fact is the most generous of our social safety net programs depending on how you um, value the health insurance components of medical and so forth. And so I was got really interested in seeing how the program interacted with people's lives and people's choices and, and those kinds of things. Um, after my dissertation when I started my career here at USC. Um, I, it was also kind of the time there during the Clinton administration and, and the Bush administration before and after, where there was a growing push for access to homeownership, recognizing that there were very large gaps in homeownership by race, certainly part of the subject of today's talk. Um, and so I began to study, trying to understand, you know, what are the sources of those gaps, um, and you know, I think that might be a good place to pause and and see. But my research, after beginning studying the gaps between the white and the black population, since that was where most of the research had been, um, living here in LA, I looked around me and and I said, well, why are we studying <laughs> what's happening only with the white and the black population? And so I spent a good decade of my career really trying to understand how immigrants um, moved into homeownership, and it turns out they actually are fairly rapid in terms of their movement into home ownership um, and look at the differences in, in countries of origin, whether throughout Latin America or, or throughout Asia.
3: That sounds great. I'm already benefiting. Uh, you bring up the cheese. It reminds me of the Reagan cheese we used to get in uh, in the 80s and 70s when we were on welfare. I just didn't like You couldn't make quesadillas because it's like bricks. You can not know, you even cut them. And speak, speaking of social benefits, one
5: yeah, we had song. to do grilled, grilled cheese sandwiches, uh, <laughs> yeah. Dr. Huerta, uh, yeah. cheese
3: sandwiches. <laughs> one thing I like about these programs is Mother's Day, the first and the 15th. So President Gay, in, in research we talk about, speaking of dissertations and, and MBAs, the best way to frame a question is is how and why. Like how does something happen, why? So wh- why is it important that, that we study and that we practice in the field of housing and inequality, especially when it comes to race and class? Why, why is it important? Uh, I know there's a lot of important issues in society, like police abuse and transportation, but what is it about housing and, and racial inequalities and, and even questions of income and, and savings? So why, why is that important? It's something that for our students here and, and for for our faculty as well that are participating to, to learn.
1: Well, if I look at an economic indicator type view, we spend a lot of time talking about what are the major indicators, right? Housing's right in there. And so I jumped into the throw of it, and many of us have. Gary, it's good to hear your background, government cheese. (laughs) I think we all know about it. Uh, And that, you know, that's across all races, right? That's why I get into this economic stuff, because... It's way too easy to just blame everything on, in my case, being black, white, and Cherokee Indian. Um, But I think it's much more apropos to figure out the money flows. You know, who pays for what? How are we dealing with it? When did we deal with it? Are people excluded? Is there parity, equity, justice? You know, what's right? And so part of that, you know, Dr. Huerta comes for me because I grew up in a household of faith, right? (laughs) It's always about righteousness, right? And justice, you know, And uh, my father was 10 times more passionate than me. But I think it's what we find is that those inequities are there and that everyone doesn't get equal access. We talk about the three A's, affordable, available, accessible, right? And if you if we don't all have the same access points, we don't all have affordability, we don't all have availability. Things like bank branches are the easiest thing to study in the world. If, in fact, in more moderate income society, bank branches are one per 5,000, but in South LA, it's one per 600,000, in East LA, one per 650, what are we doing, you know, and why don't those people groups have the same access? When we then study people migration patterns, and we understand that many times in California, there were whites who started moving west because of black flight, Latino flight, whatever little tabs you want to put on it. People weren't comfortable living together. We had redlining. We had Jim Crow. It's just been going on for hundreds of years. And that discomfort that people have, and then when they use their money and take it elsewhere, or they prohibit other people from participating because we don't look alike, you know, you're the small person if you do that. But it has nothing to do then with the systems that we've watched that then are, you know, set up to keep people out. So all this data now around appraisals that some of you have seen and how when, <laughs> when an inter- interracial couple, you know, had the, the white spouse uh, do the second appraisal and they're studying $47,000 appraisal gap. Well, this ain't new. My whole career, we've watched that stuff, right? And people who, I'm 58, people who are older than me watched redlining at its height. And so I think we just need to stop for a second. And so students, you have this phenomenal opportunity right now to look at all this data and to get in the middle of it and decide that it doesn't stop you. Do not let it be a hurdle to your success of truth. And I think um, Alex is asking me to say more about the appraisal study. write in uh, appraisal study and race into the internet (laughs) and there's all these studies that have come up we had the great privilege of interviewing dr andre perry who made it super popular to talk about this stuff last year and one of the things he and i talked about and then i'll stop is um that we do all this talk around reparations and i you know black people i hate that being the whole conversation it's just not right What is right is when we just had this pandemic start, everyone expected the U.S. government to respond and help the small business owner and help the tenant. And Now we're finally talking about helping homeowners, you know, single family unit owners. Well, it's all the same thing. If we kept black people out of stuff, we're talking about an economic investment to leverage something. That's all we're talking about. And the notion then of saying it's it's reparations for black people, but it's economic investment for everyone else. That's the trash I'm talking about. Now, it doesn't mean we shouldn't be owed something. Okay. But however we get it done is what a person like me is going to focus on. Right. And so I think with the appraisal issue, we're talking about in black neighborhoods that uh, predominantly black neighborhoods that the value of the property is less Uh, than white neighborhoods with similar property type, similar square footage, similar environment. Now, we're not trying to compare the public housing projects to Beverly Hills. When all things are equal, the fact that a black neighborhood could be devalued at $47,000 a unit, those are the numbers, people have different numbers, but that's when we're looking at racist uh, policy. And that, in fact, if the appraisal industry of America needs to redo the way they run the numbers, and if people then walk and see someone of color, see, I'm going to broaden it beyond black, someone of color, that they, they're they uncomfortable, and that enters their appraisal valuation of property, well, we got to check our standards then, because that subjectivity has to go. And it should not be allowed. And the stories that are being told that aren't new, we saw the same thing with the 1994 earthquake. Don't miss that. But the stories that are being told where when we switch the people and we take black pictures off the wall and leave the white pictures up in a home and then the appraisal value comes out, you know, $50,000 more. you You got a little challenge there. And I think that those things, us highlighting them will help us. Uh, do those conversations I mentioned earlier around making people uncomfortable so that we get a better outcome toward access, toward affordability, toward availability. Thank you, President Gay. I really appreciate how you break it down
3: in a way that those of us who, who are not part of that field can, can understand to demystify the whole process and, and break it down the way you do. Uh, I really appreciate that. And I'm sure our, our participants do as well. Uh, Professor Yerena, your take and feel free to also engage in, in commentary or response to in, any other comments of the brilliant panelists that, that we have here present today.
4: Absolutely. Thank you so much for the invitation. Uh, and thank you, Lori, for starting us off in uh, such a, a, a directly applied um, and clearly impactful space of current practices of appraisal that makes such a big impact on everything related to housing. And the my take on the question of why this is important is going to is going to take us like broader rather than the specific. I go broader and look at this as a, the humanitarian crisis that is caused by the presence of unsheltered and precariously sheltered sheltered individuals Um, anywhere in the world, which I I argue um, requires that we broaden the scope of our efforts. Uh, And by efforts, I mean our advocacy, our research, our education, our policy, and our practice. Uh, The status quo is not supporting everyone. It actually is supporting only the privileged few across the spectrum of social identities, whether we're talking about race, ethnicity, Indigenous travel, tribal sovereignty, age, sexual orientation, physical, emotional, and um, and psychological well-being, immigration status, gendered identity—that's just to name a few. Uh, and so, I, my, my role, and as I start um, this conversation with you all, I wish to point out that um, the responses to address this is. This issue is that in order to, to make progress, we need to be thinking about all people groups' needs, um, and that we address every disenfranchised that every disenfranchised group's needs, um, and that we work in solidarity with and as co conspirators of Black, African American, Latino, Latinx, and Hispanic brothers and sisters. Um, that as we do that, that we include every other oppressed group in, in our approaches. So that's why, I, and I think it's important, again, because I elevate it to the level of a humanitarian humanitarian crisis of not meeting a basic human need.
3: Like we say in LA, muchas gracias. Uh, Professor Painter, same question, and feel free to change the question or to add, go different directions.
5: Well, I guess um, and I, I, I may not be answering the question that was posed as much as just something that I've been thinking a lot about it as it relates to these issues, um, you know, which can have policy solutions that could be reparations in part, but it could also be a set of structures that shift so that people actually can have... As as I, I'm not going to get all the four A's right, Lori, but uh, from access to affordability and and the others, but I think what we see right now is one of the main drivers um, in the lack of access um, to housing to neighborhoods, et cetera, is 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 really embedded in the racial wealth gap. Um, the racial wealth gap, back when I started my academic career 25 years ago, was roughly you know. the uh, median white household had six times the wealth of a median black household, for instance. Um, Right now, the Brookings Report just put out a a report that that said that the average white household has $171,000 in wealth and the average black household 17. So it's a 10 times gap. Um, I think that gap is clearly a consequence and has compounded this con- consequence of systematic systematic racism, starting with, if we just talk about housing, which we could talk about today and not talk about the labor market or anything else, we can talk about what happened with redlining of neighborhoods. Um, and we can go really deep on that. And I have PhD students who are working on that. And we note actually that a third of the redlined neighborhoods were redlined just because there were immigrants in them. And there were no Black people and half had some Black people or only Black people in them as the reason. And 10% were redlined for other reasons. But we're seeing that that has different consequences over time as it relates to segregation and also to home values, as as Lori pointed out with the appraisal um, and just the way that people value things. But this racial wealth gap is a consequence of, again, the opportunity to get into housing early and so forth. Over time. And we can talk about that. I think it's important just to lay on the table some of the data that, for instance, the homeownership gap has been remarkably persistent between the white population and the black population. In 1960, it was 27%. In kind of right around 2000, it it kind of shrunk to its lowest level in a while. It kind of vacillates. It was even slightly lower than that. Um, As of 2019, we're back over 30%. Um, It's clear that our sets of policies um, are not sufficient to address racial equity and to address the uh, really the the rhetoric of the American dream, the Constitution, etc. And so that means that we have to reassess how we've gone about the work that we've done. Um, and so that it means that you know some of our programs that have been entirely focused on kind of the individual, um, and kind of then hoped that the individual would react to that program in a particular way, and then that would lead to opportunity and success. I think it it shows that you know really fifty years of that sort of an approach needs to be completely rethought, and so we have to move up a level, at least one or two levels. Um, really think about what are the systems in place that prevent, you know, the kind of individual policies, for instance, to work like we might hope they do. And in many ways, myself, my own training as an economist is going to be somewhat incomplete to test such policies, because our tools are really looking at the impact of the individual policy on the individual person, um, and then kind of aggregating it up. And so, you know, I think this is an exciting time for scholars and scholar activists come, to come together to really rethink the models of inquiry and so that we can actually assess not only what's happening with individuals, but what's happening collectively. There's a quote from Ibram Kendi that I, I think, you know kind of captures this notion of kind of how we ought to kind of hold ourselves to multiple metrics of success, both at the individual and the group level. Um, and I apologize that I'm not reading it directly. And so I'll get it in part wrong. It's from his book, Stamped from the Beginning. And what he notes is that if we truly believe that all racial groups are created equal or are equal, depending on whether you're a person of faith or, or not. Um, I like Lori grew up in a very religious home. And so I, I think about it from that, that standpoint. Um, then we ought to observe outcomes of equality by group and if we don't, that means that there is systematic racism preventing equality by group. And I think that again, notion of it's okay to look at group outcomes to track and hold ourselves accountable is really important and is not always in our debate. You know, People in the US, especially very individualistic culture says, no, 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 let's, let's look at the individual. Um, And I think that doesn't mean that we ignore the individual, but what it means to me is that we have to hold ourselves accountable to multiple metrics, um, both, you know, how policies are impacting the individual, but also how policies are impacting the group. And if for some reason they seem to be at odds with each other, one is showing trends that are moving in the wrong direction, then we actually need to change what we're doing.
3: Well, thank you for that, uh, Professor Painter. Um, for, for everybody's uh, benefit, when, when um, our brilliant speakers here, they, they actually told me to say, say brilliant speakers, they're like texting me right now. Uh, distinguished speakers talk about redlining, what they're referring to is this policy and practice. During the New Deal, during FDR, the, the greatest Democrat of all time, Outside of Obama, the most progressive, where within his policies, the Housing Acts. Actually, there was two New Deals. Uh, there was there was this this practice, this policy where the federal government uh, designed maps of cities of areas, and they had colors. They have different. That's why they call it redlining. They have different colors, and in this, this is a high risk area. And then and another area was less risky. So the high-risk people, more inner city, more African Americans, Latinos, and so on and so forth. And so the suburbs became less risky, and then you start to see like white flight. Because it would be cheaper for white family to rent or to buy in, in a less risky area. So the federal government, this is why we talk about systemic racism. It's not true, it's a lie that that. People solely live next to each other because they're, they're familiar with them. So this is a lie that like, oh, immigrants speak, live next to immigrants because they there's that commonality with, with language, with culture, and so on and so forth. Black people in the same way, Asian in the same way. It's true and it's not true at the same time. I mean, it's true there's that familiarity, but it was the federal government in cahoots, people, that's a SAT word, even though the SAT is not required, in cahoots with the real estate with the racist real estate agents that steered black people away from certain neighborhoods. So you have the the federal government with the private and then the racist residents. And then you have situations in housing where where in the deed itself it says, oh, you cannot sell to a black person. Only white people can buy this home and so on and so forth. Uh, And so you see that these practices that are coming from the federal government in in, in cahoots or in conjunction with the local racist practices that not only allow segregation, but perpetuate segregation for years to come. This is what redlining is, and and it has to do with maps and colors and uh, and, and, in terms of risk and things of that that nature. Uh, So there's just a little bit of background information. Actually, I didn't know I was going to teach today, but here I am. Um, I hope I get a raise at least or something, or, or Panda or something for it. Um, Professor Gay, a uh, question for you is, and for all of you is, when we think about crisis, 2008 housing crisis, the pandemic, the orange crisis went away, but during the pandemic, when we think about crisis, we always have this idea and we see this a lot on, uh, on in the media, is like all Americans are impacted. Like we're all suffering. So when we're thinking about major crises like 2008 housing, like the pandemic today, how does that bring out or exasperate, another SAT word for everybody in here, the the inequality, the the racial inequality? How how is it manifested, especially with your knowledge? And you have the benefit of not
1: only having that knowledge, but also the practice. Thank you. I keep laughing because you have these titles for me. I'm not used to. (laughs) President Kay, Professor (laughs) Kay. Impact. So I was uh, getting excited as Gary was talking about the racial wealth gap. There's all these studies. Sometimes they conflict. So you have to kind of just pour through that, everybody. But let me just say that the the Federal Reserve came out with a study, uh, I think, in 2016 called The Color of Money. And it talked about right here in Los Angeles that blacks had a net worth of 1% of white people. So people wanted to fight about that study and say some of the sources weren't all that great. And I had staff who were challenging me about it and I said, so, okay, let's add a zero. So we're 10%, (laughs) whopping, right? So what makes that inequity sit there? Why do you have wealth gaps of those types? Whatever the data is, it's less than right. That's the outcome, and so the impact of redlining, restrictive covenants, which you were destri- describing so well, Dr. Huerta, uh, is what Gary mentioned, and it's this. These are the outcomes now: is that people don't have the same um, good benefit because over time they've they've been marginalized or cut out. And so I think for us, we've watched it. So I'll give a couple of data numbers, stick with me. Thankfully, this is recorded. But what we see on the purchase side of the business um, that we run is that families have been told they can't access uh, homeownership. So we get them on the path to home ownership, right? And that's through financial education, setting up a financial plan, them having a financial coach, you know, who's working with them to get credit, savings, and income lined up to access the current system. Then we do jokes with the system, we play games with it, and we press lenders to not be racist in their policies and products, and to let people who aren't typically accessing. We use the Home Mortgage Disclosure Act data to say you're a liar and a cheat, bank X, and you need to do a better job of reaching the poor, you need to do a better job of reaching modest income, you need to do a better job of reaching ethnic minorities and BIPOC and all the language we're using now. And then what we do is we push that, right? And we create products that are more innovative so they can get brownie points with their regulators (laughs) for doing what they should have always done, what's right and what's just, which is equal access, fair lending laws, right? So all of that is going on um, with, the normal everyday household. And so as we get people on the path to learn the rules of engagement, how to be better at maneuvering the mortgage process, we have more success. And the ethnic minority participates at higher levels in our business. We're 95% people of color and we're the largest provider in the region. Why are the banks not able to say that? They don't want to. And yes, I pick on them in person. Right? Because they know this data and they don't want to. And if people can get away with not equal access, equal availability through their branch networks, then guess what? They will, and no one has stopped them. So we fight to the death some days as advocates because we want everyone to have a chance to play at the game of building their wealth and their legacy. Other thing I'll say, uh, then groups like ours, and there's a bunch of us right across the country, need to focus on legacy with families and building wealth in ways that may not involve real estate. It may be estate planning in different ways building their portfolio and not just their credit score. And so we're talking more like that now. And that's a financial literacy issue. The typical American is not saving 10%. These are normal numbers when you talk in finance, but they're not. They don't have 20% for a down payment for a house. That's just way out somewhere for the rich and not the everyday. And so when we focus our businesses around trying to make sure more people have a chance to participate, you do invert things like Dr. Painter was talking about. These old ways haven't worked and community development corporations, which is the industry I'm in, we're not big enough. We don't have capacity to be able to change the whole system. Last part I'll say, once people are in a home or building their portfolio through uh, a number of means uh, to have their family's legacy and generation, other generations open to access things, you then have to think about staying there. How do you maintain it? If those impacts kept you out and then you got in, how do you make sure you're okay? We have thousands of families per year of color losing homes because they can't pay the taxes or the insurance bill. So we're talking about legacy on on what we consider very basic levels. And you may have had someone uh, own the home 50 years, and then when they die or they're moving down in terms of their real estate need, the family doesn't have the financial wherewithal to keep the property. Well, what are we talking about? The family uh, doesn't put in any more into the stock market account. What are we talking about? And so that's a literacy issue. And it's okay to say we're dumb. I'm dumb on a whole lot of stuff. Don't know nothing about it. So we need to get educated, right? So we do a better job. And I think in many households, these are things that are considered awkward and it's not talked about. And we're busy watching television and laughing and giggling but you don't own your own. Let me just let that simmer a minute. Everyone should have access. If they don't want it, let me talk about black people for a minute, and you have a rentership society, then at least do a good job at it. And so what we discovered post foreclosure, Dr. Huerta, is that young blacks, particularly millennials millennials did not value home ownership in the same way as their parents and their grandparents did. And what we needed to do was change that. And NHS watched its business beyond loss, lots of black people lost their homes. We watched the buppy, say they'd rather live in Santa Monica as a renter, nicer community, right? They weren't interested in the Crenshaw home, the South LA, you know, east to western by the freeway, all that. They didn't wanna live by the 110, that wasn't good enough. Well, look dummy, at least own it (laughs) and rent it out then. But you don't just sell your grandmother, we call him Madeer, you don't sell Madeer's house. What are you thinking? So I went on black radio, black television, black, everything black and called people dummies and said, stop it, get in here. And let's make sure that we're not blaming white people and saying it's gentrification. Come on now, when you're willing to sell the home or sell the stock or sell the car, whatever the asset is, keep it and figure out ways to make it work better for you as you look ahead and leverage that. I think in all of our ethnic communities we can do a better job of getting that messaging out and that we can then provide the supportive systems that help people stay. Over the past week, we have had 2,422 people come to class at NHS online to prevent foreclosure. We announced the county's mortgage relief program and so here we go. 427 applicants for the relief fund, Gary, in seven days. You think we don't have a problem? Hopefully before we get off this line today, I can show you our homeowner vulnerability index. It's all red, Dr. Huerta, in the middle of the city. So we have some work to do. We can get people in, but can they stay? We can tell people the access points to building their wealth portfolio. Will they be able to sustain it? I think these are the hard conversations now. And it's okay to say we're dumb and we need some help. And then we get in here. I will not ever be on record for blaming white people ever for everything. I do think that there's been a lot of systems that have been crazy. And sometimes it's looked all white, right? In terms of who's managing to it, but we have our own responsibility and we can push back now more than ever. And so I want to encourage that. Well, thank you,
3: Professor Gay. President Gay, you are a professor too. You speak truth and I think when it comes to the average folk, you know, the, the people on the streets, you need to speak to them in a direct way. You know, you have to speak to them in the language they understand. This is what a lot of academics don't understand. They never grew up on the streets. Is that you have to speak with people. It's, it's like with the vaccine. Like, get the vaccine. It like, you know, don't no says don't. And be, so,
1: and be plain. You know, people be understand. Be straight, that. I'm not demeaning anyone, but no, 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 know, you're not. No, because you're right. You're right about things. We're all dummies
3: in one area or another. Like when it comes <laughs> there's, to, there's a bunch. When it of stuff comes to technology, to I'm a dummy. Like I, yeah. I still have a MySpace account. You know this. <laughs> okay. I don't even know how I even got on Zoom. You know that's how bad I am with with social media and, and technology. <laughs> so, um, I had to get a day labor to come and do the, my my Zoom session for me. But what I'm getting at is that when we have these ideas up here they're no good if they don't translate to the to the average folk and, and we're not just talking about black and brown people we're talking about white folk too you know in terms of the average american is not didn't go to the university you know, we're talking about people that graduated high school or ged or or or, or not so we, we need to speak and, and be able to code switch and be able to switch and and talk to everybody to to get that message out. The importance of investing, the importance of saving, the importance of, of um, homeownership and, and not 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 live in the moment where it's like, somebody offers you money and then you're gonna take it. Uh, Professor Yerena, so anything rela- re- related to the crisis that we're in today with COVID and in, in the 2008, of yeah. the crisis and how is it that that manifested in particular with, with racial minorities
4: um what what I would like to share there is that to be sure the any well crises affect many people if not all um there is I observe a, a collective grief that we will have to deal with uh, of what of the situation that we're experiencing today whether it's grief over the loss of life or grief over the loss of the opportunities and moments and shared experiences that have been um have been lost in 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 the pandemic. So to be sure I see in this particular crisis everyone being impacted however when it comes to groups that are um, marginalized within society, so not just by race, but again, back to that um, broader definition of who I I care about in my work and who I'm um, speaking with, Uh, I see those as the groups with the highest vulnerability, which means the less that, that they they experience the least al- number of alternatives. So when your car breaks down and you uh, are, are in um, in a privileged socioeconomic status, you either have the education to try to fix it yourself, maybe you figure something out. You could have the income that allows you to, you know, hail a cab or order an Uber, or you have the social network that allows you, due to your profession, um, that, that allows you to reach out to somebody to come pick you up, right? Like, and so you have all these alternatives to deal with this, the, the situation, the, the crisis in the moment that your car broke down. And so that is why I see uh, um, vulnerable populations being um, disparately impacted by these crises because there is no margin for error. There's no room the, the 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 alternatives are limited in those circumstances. And so it 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 does have this um disproportionate impact in in vulnerable groups. Um, i I do want to pick up on something that Lori was sharing about like the the role, the responsibility, the approach of uh, looking at the individual level of how home ownership um can be attainable for more individuals. And I want to um, share that I would add to that, that we need to look at the other two levels uh, in which oppression exists as well. And those are the institutional level and the ideological level, right? So if all of us as individuals were working tirelessly and infinitely on addressing the issue without moving the needle on the other two, we're just going to burn ourselves up. And I don't know how much progress we can make. And so it's looking at individual level solutions, such as the work that um, the the organization that Lori works with is doing and complementing that and identifying um, partners to work in solidarity with these these organizations at the other two levels. And so examples of um, institutions that are perpetuating the the current circumstances. An example was brought up earlier already about redlining, but we could look at um, the current zoning practices. So the fact that um, about 80 percent of residential land in or up to 80 percent of residential land in um, cities is reserved for single family use is a problematic perpetuation of the settler colonial state. So this idea that we're going to distribute the land and there will be very few individuals, aka those that live in a single family unit that own all of this resource that is supposed to be, um, yeah, that, that is finite, that we can't just come up with more of it in the air if we need more and and it's going to be limited for those that have the most privilege in our society because those are the ones that can afford a down payment that have the financial literacy to uh, go through the home buying process that are able to then maintain they have the savings so that they can later maintain the home and and maybe bequeath it to their uh, to future generations right and so the planning institution I believe is complicit in perpetuating the these inequalities and so and at the ideological level that that concerns all of us so institutions and individuals identifying these places of complacency of um complicity uh in upholding the 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 current system that again when we look at it is not serving most of us and is unjust and unsustainable.
3: Thank you for that, Professor Yerena. Same question, uh, Professor Painter, or you you can take a different take. Uh, And then after after you speak, if if the speakers, the panelists, the brilliant panelists can can look at the the two of the questions and it'll just be open up for um, there's a buzzer that you hit and then whoever hits it first, you know, gets to answer the question. So Professor Painter.
5: Yeah, thank you, Dr. Huerta. I I, I have to say that when I'm the third person in the line, I sometimes I for, forget the question, but I'm, <laughs> I, I'm pretty sure I remember it this time.
3: Right, right, yeah. Um, right. I
5: believe we were talking about the, kind of what what about the pandemic and what does that do? What does that right. mean? And And I think where we need to start is actually, where were we in 2019? what was the state of housing? What was the level of housing insecurity? And um, I think what we know if we look at the data is the level of housing insecurity in 2019 was the highest that I had ever seen. Um, in California, 1.36 million households paid more than half their income as rent. Um, that to me is at that crisis level where any time you have a, an expense even as little as $400, you can end up potentially not being able to pay rent and then being at risk of eviction. Um, We've actually done a study in in, uh, South LA and in Central Los Angeles and asked 800 households that that question among others, which is if you had an expense more than $400, how would you pay for it? Um, And 20% of them said, I could not. That means that 20% with one expense they would they would end up being on the path toward eviction, and and so that that itself is is something to sit with and 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 care about. Um, I I see a few of the questions about Singapore's housing market. I thought you know I think the way to tie it in is to think about what they're providing for people in Singapore. Um, you know, many of you may not be familiar, but roughly eighty to ninety percent of Singapore's housing market is public housing. Um, this public housing is intricately tied into people's pension plans and their work history and, and their access there, but people don't have to worry about living on the streets. They don't have to worry about falling out. And so to that end, that's part of just living is that there's they have stable housing. It may not be the housing that you necessarily want it to be. Um, there's certain rules and regulations that I think people bristle with respect to looking at the housing market in Singapore, for instance, all of their buildings, have actually racial quotas attached to them um, where you have a certain percentage of the Malay population, native Singaporeans, Chinese population, and Indian population and other that needs to be maintained um, because they believe that proximity will lead to more integration. Um, And some people may like that, some people may not. But I think the important part there and what we don't have here in Los Angeles and California and the nation is that we don't actually have a hope of housing and instability for so many people who qualify for housing assistance that just can't get it. Um, the waiting lists are too long. They'll have to wait five years to 10 years in almost every case. And so I think understanding what can be done to improve housing instability, we need to actually address, you know, rethinking how we provide that assistance. Now, certainly the Biden administration in some of the kind of American rescue plans kind of things that were attached to the tax code, which were one time but could be permanent around child tax credits and so forth, are a kind of backwards way of getting at some protections for families that then could support people in in their homes But the pandemic was not equally felt by everyone. And if you don't mind, I'll just share one slide from some work that I, um, my partner at at USC, Manuel Pastor, who runs the Equity Research Center, um, put together. And I think what was really interesting in terms of identifying folks who were going to be at risk during the pandemic was that there was two layers of risk. There were the layer of risk that you might be exposed to the virus and there's the layer of risk that your job might not be essential and so you could lose it and i think what's important to see here if you look at that red category these are the essential jobs higher risk meaning that you're going to be exposed to the virus and that means that you know immigrant families latino households uh, native hawaiian pacific islander households um, even even higher numbers like 38 percent of this particular group, Native American, Pacific Islander immigrants, you know, were in those high-risk jobs. It is not surprising, then, that the COVID case rate and the death rates among the exact kind of lined up exactly with essential work. Um, It didn't have to do with different cultural norms. It didn't have to do with anything. It had to do exactly with were you exposed. And then you have this other kind of category in between. These are the folks who might be at risk of losing their jobs. Right. Whereas over here, the lower risk jobs and so forth, there was more flexibility. And so when we're thinking about kind of where we need to recover, we don't want to recover to where we were in 2019, where, you know, like I said, you know, more than a million households are paying more than half their income is rent. And in Los Angeles, it was somewhere around 800,000. I mean, that you can't recover to that. And 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 then have that many people who are at risk of eviction at any point in time with one one four hundred dollar expense. Um, and we have to address the fact that there were a lot of people who have now experienced tremendous loss because of the virus and and, and personal loss, and then there's another large number of people who have experienced job loss. So I I would just uh kind of help uh think, you know, collectively, we need to orient ourselves to where we need to go, um, not do, you know, is it not, and it's kind of hard to say this, like we like to use the word recovery, like recovery to back to where we were in 2019 is just not acceptable. You know, we have to plot a new future and that new future means one that, you know, the kinds of policies that were in place in 2019 need to be shifted as we talked about before.
3: Uh, Thank you, Professor Painter. We can't go through a a webinar without a slide. So that that really made me feel like I was an actual webinar versus a group therapy. Uh, Now that we're all kinship here, we have the same roots. So um, President Gay, can can you look at some of the questions and kind of address them? And then related to the question of like, well, as we're wrapping this up, uh, because happy hour is going to start at uh, 2.30 and I need to run. can you look at it in terms of like some of the solutions and, and looking at some of the questions and you don't necessarily have to answer them exactly, but some of the solutions that you, you propose to to deal with these racial uh, income inequities in in America or even in LA to, to keep it
1: more local? So Alex reminded me, I wanted to share yet a quick slide. Let me see if I All can All right, do there it. you go. Two slides. It's a bonus. There's two slides. And you'll tell me if you can see it, right? Uh, This is the Homeowner Vulnerability Index that we created in conjunction with UCLA Center for Neighborhood Knowledge, and we overlaid the Pulse Survey with notice of sale, notice of default, etc., and we're updating it now through March of this year, but you can see how red the central city is, as I talked about earlier, and uh, this is the 405 freeway on your left right in here and the 110, right? And so you get a sense of uh, (laughs) just the challenge. And I think that um, what we know is that the west side of the city is gonna do a little better. They have more resources, right? And this is a countywide map. So we tried to study it for all homeowners and then we broke it down by race. Blacks were of course leading uh, with 47% vulnerability, but Latinos were at 46%. And so the, this is the the one to 20 unit property owners. And when you break it down then into more unit segments, it just gets worse, not better. So I think what Gary was just saying relative to um, all of the pieces of the pandemic, we need a new future. And this is so much bigger than the some called it the Great Recession, the last foreclosure crisis, and we saw you know, like 30% of California, I think, was a the number they were giving us, again, recently to look backward, was at risk. You know, now we know 2019, even worse. And so the supply and demand piece, all the economic students on the phone, right, we haven't been building enough for some time. So then we need to build more. And I'm grateful that there are a number of coalitions throughout the state of California that are talking about that. Let's eliminate, decrease, dissolve, (laughs) devolve, whatever the words are, divide and conquer all the uh, silly policies that make it hard for us to build more housing. And you don't always have to do new. I'll never forget some work we did with Airbnb. I'll give them a shout out where we were looking at rehabilitating homes throughout the region and using some of their investment capital to do that. NHS, that's core to our business. Fix up what you have. Add an ADU, that's popular language now. Convert your garage. It's all been the same thing forever. Do extend a bedroom. If you think you can stomach having someone else live in your home, do it. (laughs) If you can stomach having someone in your backyard you don't quite know super well, we always say don't rent to relatives, they don't always pay. (laughs) (laughs) The point is, think about those options to make life more palatable. 47%, or no, 73% I think of the people we dealt with with that initiative with Airbnb were doing it because it helped them pay their mortgage. And so I think those are things we need to say out loud and that it's okay to need help because housing is ridiculously costly in our state and certainly in Southern California. And so as we regionalize the new normal, the new future, whatever that is, I think we created the Center for Economic Recovery we saw it as a 10-year initiative. We just launched it last year, late last year with bankers getting started, yelling at them the most to come up with solutions in our neighborhoods. But we're, we're inviting all of you, please, to feel free to join in with us as we learn to collaborate better. Uh, Dr. Urena, I wrote your name down five times during this talk about ways we need to think beyond just physical structures, right? The pandemic challenges us toward that. And what we know is that there's emotional, there's grief, there's, I'm a pastor's wife. You know, There's, I cry every day. I did that during the foreclosure crisis. Now that's healing for me, but getting the pain, dealing with pain, we've had more death and loss in this last year than any people could ever imagine. And we all know someone. So it's much deeper than the last crises, deeper than the earthquakes, deeper than fires, right? This is the people business. We've never though been able to talk about health equals housing like we have now, and that people need decent, safe, affordable housing than we've ever been able to talk about it. And so I'm grateful for that. So I think we deal with zoning, Dr. Huerta. We deal with building policies. We deal with um, land use. Um, We don't wanna take all the green away that we're supposed to have, but there are other places that It doesn't need to be green. So let's do adaptive reuse. I'm a developer, you know. Why do we have more than 70,000 vacant, unused buildings just in the city of LA alone? Why do we have a homeless crisis, God dog it? This is the way we've got to talk. And we've got to lean in and push more than we ever have to make people have these uncomfortable conversations. Because some of this stuff just hasn't worked. And it's okay that we're doing it. And we can't lose sight or intention or passion and commitment around needing to have the conversation. I do think there's also legislative detail, right, and legislative uh, work that we all can advocate, it for, advocate for and getting involved in groups that are pushing that envelope, right, in terms of legislation matters. Um, we want the corporate investor, I saw a question about that, to be taxed. So SB 1199, follow it. And we're fussing because they didn't put it on this year's agenda. That's the other game that gets played by the electeds. Tax the corporate investor so it's a penalty to come in the neighborhood. This is easy. Why let them buy up everything and then blame them for it, right? So we can legislate some of that, that it's more expensive for them to play in our neighborhoods, and maybe they'll slow down. Will it stop them? Probably not. So though I just think I'm the the housing and finance person, I can speak to those things, but the people side of it is that everyone has a voice. Yes, you voice with your vote, but you can also voice with joining in with now advocacy and legislative movements that push the envelope to make change last for the long run. And I think when groups like ours own properties that had restrictive covenants, that's a scary thing. You should see some of the deeds of trust we have to look at. So you still got to deal with the people part, Dr. Urena. You're completely correct. I applaud you for saying it. And I think that this call, right, gives us a chance to get activated. And so I want to encourage that of all of us um, today as we leave. Thank you, uh, President Gay. Actually, the reason I keep calling you Professor Gay is because I want you to teach a class at our
3: college uh, you could do it through Zoom, because I know you're in LA, so you don't have to drive like through traffic. and uh, maybe I'm always
1: available to you, Dr. Wade. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> <are.
3: laughs> so before we wrap up, I want to give, uh, before uh, Dr. Yerena and Dr. Payne, just one solution that they, they recommend. Um, I just want to make sure, you know, thank people like Professor Michael Wu, who actually invited me, and you know, we, we've known each other for a long time. Uh, and also, he reminded me that the author of, of "Color of Wealth" is is, is with us um, here in participating. So, I'm really, I'm really grateful about that. Uh, and, and once uh, Professor Painter speaks after uh, Professor Yeren, I will have uh, Professor Madva uh, give us a uh, closing comments in in terms of you know wrapping it up because we want to respect you know people's time, the panelists' time. You know, we're, we're ending at two uh, thirty, uh, so. Professor Yerena, take it away.
4: Thank you, and yes, I have been uh, keeping track of the, the awesome questions that um, are being posted. And um, I, I think that my, um, my path forward or the, the path forward that I would will present will address some of the questions brought up um, by Nathan. I believe that's how it's pronounced as well as another participant um, further down, Jasmine. Um, So this notion of like what to do and related to um, income inequality and the relationship to, um, or the impact it it has uh, in our ability to become and or remain sheltered. And that is related to um, where I think that to move forward, The concerns of of how to improve, we need to be concerned with how we improve our commitment, ability and capacity to meet the basic human need for all people Um, and for all people groups. Uh, This will require that we analyze, work in solidarity with and address the causes of this humanitarian crisis at the three levels that we've been mentioning earlier. And um, the one that I would like to close with is, so what can be done at the ideological level? And at the ideological level, I think that there's two um, main concerns. Uh, one of them is the decommodification of housing. So revisiting our the the use value that we think housing has from it's my investment. It's uh, the wealth that I'm going to pass on to my um, to my children or to generations to come. Or the um, like. Yeah. Sometimes it's even associated with status and 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 self worth and value within society. To more to the 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 social value it has. So like how being sheltered contributes to the health of a society. Um, and related to the, that conversation that it has been started and is 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 picking up on like that direct link between being a healthy society broadly speaking and having people sheltered well rather than n- unsheltered, and the uh, and um, uh, a distinction that I like to make in is acknowledging the the concept of social housing in contrast to public housing or affordable housing, in that it's housing that, again, that is serving a social purpose, um, can come with less constraints, is is much more flexible, is much m- more humanitarian. And there are examples around the world. Um, one that I'm most familiar with is in Austria, in Vienna. I encourage you to, to again, consider contrasting those approaches to Um, to shelter and then finally revisiting the U.S. Constitution and its individualistic values because as long as we keep arguing down here and we haven't changed the framework under which we're operating we will continue to say that it that individual the pursuit of happiness at the individual level is acceptable and you know an okay to be an okay way to exist Um, and in so doing we become complicit to the harms that are being caused to uh, other members of society. Thank you.
3: Thank you, Professor Yerena, Professor Painter?
5: Yeah, I, th- I don't know how best to conclude, to be quite honest. I think um, the conversations covered a lot of critical issues and I, and I think uh, Professor Yerena has kind of concluded in, in a place that we also began, which is this tension between, kind of what's happening at the individual level and the choices that people are really, you know, in some of the questions are like well what should I do right now? Should I invest in housing? Should I invest in the stock market? You know, how do I build wealth for me and my family? And then how do we judge what we're doing from a societal standpoint? And and I think that shift and kind of understanding that both of those metrics are important and critical for judging how we're doing as a body politic as a society is absolutely essential. Um, I I think that we are seeing some breaking down of some of the policies that have persisted as response to civil rights, things like single family zoning and those kinds of things, um, where we're seeing that eventually, I I do anticipate in California, there won't be single family zoning. Um, Is that enough to get us the amount of housing that we need? Is it you know, does it address issues of congestion and parking and all those kinds of things. And and the answer is no, it doesn't address all of those things. Um, We need to think holistically about what our community is. But we do know that we need to break down what those barriers are. Um, And and I'll just kind of conclude with kind of from the individual standpoint, you know, for the students that are here and what you what you you know are trying to do as you're thinking about things, it really is incredibly advantageous for you and then your family if you're able to save whatever you can as early as possible. Um, Albert Einstein did say there's no more powerful force in the universe than the power of compound interest. Um, And, you know, if you can start saving at age 21, um, and you can invest some of that in financial assets, some of it in a house along the way, um, you're going to be able to have more choices as you go down the road. And I think that's what we see a lot of times in immigrant families and immigrant communities, they just save like crazy. And they recognize their ability to have stability and then to put down roots in a new place. Is dependent on just saving like crazy, and and that's why we see such rapid um, integration into the housing market among immigrant communities. Um, so maybe with a little bit of hope, yes, there's significant barriers out there, um, and we could spend really the whole conversation decomposing what those barriers are, especially as it relates to discrimination in the housing markets. But you also, you know, there's significant hope, and there are moments where you can you know in part you know control your destiny by by taking actions that help yourself and your family
3: gracias professor painter uh this is a very informative webinar but very um knowledgeable uh panel uh, there was uh, someone asked about students in terms of from solutions to students. And I would just say this. One, Biden and my cousin Kamala, they have to abolish all student loans. None of this $10,000. No, Just wipe the whole thing. And I'm saying this because I have student loans still and I'm paying for my son's student. It goes to hammer, so that's a lot of money. Like 80000 a year. So it's just giving me anxiety thinking about it. Abolish all student loans. And like my Tio Bernie says, I believe that the university should be free. All of these baby boomer uh, congressmen, they're all like a millionaire's club. When they went to the university, it was like 50 cents a a quarter a semester. It was free. It was practically free. Going to UCLA in 1970, like a dollar a unit. When I went to UCLA in 1985, I started when I was seven. So you all know, I was a child prodigy. I started UCLA. My registration was like $450, I still have it. It's like, I have to look for it. $450, that's nothing. So for young people to enter the housing market, it's impossible for them to enter if they have all this debt. They have all this student debt. So we have to provide free education at the university level, college level, so that students, when they, when they enter the workforce, you know, there's, they start to accumulate wealth as, as they move forward. But for me, that that's something that's key. And, and um, I'm going to keep bugging Biden to see if, if he can uh, make a difference, make a difference in, in in the pockets of, of, uh, people that are struggling and, or people that that just need to get ahead and they, they need to get this apple trust, you know, you know, get, get it off their necks. So with that, uh, I feel that it's important that uh, that we all come together and and we appreciate our speakers, but we also appreciate the fact that you know we have we have a lot of people in, in the audience that, that are asking excellent questions and are looking forward to a you know more equitable um, and just a society. So with that, uh, Professor Madva, can you please? close it here because I I think I ran out of words to say and my East L.A. accent is getting in the way. So if you can do that for us, please.
2: Well, I definitely just want to say thank you so much for um, a truly incredible moving and empowering session. Uh, I think it's safe to say that we're all a little bit less dumb than we were 90 minutes ago. So I am really grateful for the opportunity. So uh, please everybody bring your virtual hands together once again to thank all our panelists and to thank all of you for joining us today.
0: This project was made possible with support from California Humanities, a nonprofit partner of the National Endowment for the Humanities. Visit calhum.org for more. A special thanks to our panelists and audience members and thanks to you for listening.